Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining us here at the Virtual Institute for Government. This backdrop is um, just a clever bit of tech. I'm not actually at our building in central London. Uh, my name is Akash Pound, and I'm very pleased to be chairing today's event on devolution and the future UK-EU relationship. It's now almost exactly four years since the British people voted to take the UK out of the European Union. And since then, we at the Institute for Government have followed pretty much every twist and turn of the process, and there have been many. Just in the last month, uh, colleagues of mine have published reports on the civil service after Brexit, on the uh, challenges in implementing the Northern Ireland Protocol, and on different possible ways that the UK and EU could secure more time for negotiating, implementing and ratify, ratifying a new relationship. And, and we will come on to some of those themes in today's discussion. Um, we've also at various points looked at how Brexit and its aftermath will affect devolution and the, the governments in Edinburgh, Cardiff and Belfast, which brings us, of course, to the purpose of today's event. We will be discussing over the next hour or so how the devolved governments have been involved in negotiating the future relationship with the EU, what their priorities have been, what influence they've been able to have and how they're preparing for what comes next. And I'm delighted to have such a great panel with me to talk through all of these issues. So thank you to our four speakers for joining us. Um, just to say, for those who are watching our event live, well, first of all, thanks for joining us. Um, if you have questions for the panel, please do submit them using the Q&A function um, on Teams, and I'll do my best to weave as many of your questions into the discussion as I can. I'd now like to introduce our speakers and then get the discussion underway. So first of all, I'm very pleased to welcome Jenny Gilruth, who's member of the Scottish Parliament for Mid Fife and Glenrothes and Scottish Minister for Europe and International Development. Jenny, welcome. Our second speaker is Jeremy Miles, Council General and Minister for European Transition in the Welsh Government and member of the Welsh Parliament for Neath. Jeremy, good to have you with us. Third, joining us from Northern Ireland is David Finnamore, who is Professor of European Politics at Queen's University in Belfast and also visiting professor at the College of Europe in Bruges. David, welcome. And uh, finally, uh, just to mention that unfortunately due to technical problems, Sir David Liddington, who was due to join the panel, has been unable to take part. We hope to have him with us uh, for another as soon as possible. But instead, and with great thanks to her for stepping in at late notice, I'm very pleased to be joined by my colleague Maddie, uh, Maddie Timont-Jack, who's a senior researcher um, here at the Institute, a core member of the Brexit research team, who also dabbles in devolution questions from time to time. So welcome to all four of you. Okay, so I'd like to start with, um, well, what's happened just last week when the Scottish and Welsh First Ministers wrote to the Prime Minister calling upon him to seek an extension to the transition process. That uh, was rejected by, uh, by the Prime Minister and by, by Michael Gove almost immediately. 
and the government reconfirmed that the transition to a new relationship with the EU um, will come to an end on 31st of December, meaning that the UK will leave the single market and customs union with all that goes with it at that point. Jeremy, were you expecting that response or did you have any genuine hopes that the government might uh, change their position at this late point? Um, look, the context for this is that um, as a government, we want to be constructive participants in the set of discussions with the UK government, all governments in the UK around European uh, uh, exit. Uh, when we were negotiating the withdrawal agreement, we were repeatedly told that when we got to the next phase, the future relationship, there would be much greater uh, participation, much greater engagement and involvement. So what happened on Friday of last week was, as you say, both first ministers wrote a letter making it clear what the case was in our judgment for extending the period for negotiation and transition. Uh, and the response that came back from that really effectively was a public tweet by Michael Gove indicating the UK government had given notice of no intention of doing that. Actually, what ought to have happened as a result of that is there ought to have been discussions between the governments around it. And it isn't simply about repeating one's position, it's about engaging with the arguments that governments are making. Uh, that evening, uh, there was a scheduled discussion around uh, uh, the high level meeting and the Scottish government uh, and the Welsh government decided not to participate in that meeting. But it's worth probably bearing in mind that that wasn't intended to be a sort of substantive uh, set of discussions that evening. It was likely to be, you know, a readout of the UK government's perspective uh, in oral form. And that's not no discourtesy to anybody in that forum, but that absolutely isn't the basis upon which proper intergovernmental relations can be conducted in relation to something as significant as uh, EU uh, departure. Now, the point isn't uh, that these uh, relationships should depend on uh, whether governments agree or who the people are sitting around the table. They need to be sufficiently robust to be able to cope with uh, contrary arguments being put by governments on uh, matters of significance and able to be resolved regardless of who the individuals happen to be around that table. Uh, so, as I say, what ought to have happened was a set of proper engagements around uh, the decision. Uh, you know, the decision didn't need to be taken on the day it was taken. Uh, and it ought to have been the subject of proper reflection and discussion between the governments. Now, that's not to say that the prospects of persuading the Prime Minister to change his mind were very high, needless to say, mm. but that isn't the basis upon which governmental relations can proceed. They need to be on the basis of mutual respect and parity of esteem. And that was, we felt, sadly, very lacking in that response. Mm -hmm. OK, thanks for that. Je Jenny, I suspect you agree with uh, quite a lot of that and I will come to you in a moment. Um, I first just uh, want to, to, to bring in uh, Maddie on this point. So is that it then, Maddie? Is, is, is the idea of an extension dead or is there any chance of, of yet another twist in this long tail, do you think? Well, I, I mean, I think for the moment, um, obviously, the UK government has made its position very clear and 
clearly there is not the political um, will or interest in extending um, the transition period um, at this point. Um, this is something though, um, as you said in your introduction, Akash, this is something that the IFG has looked at though. You know, if the UK government were to change its mind at a later point in the year, particularly probably um, looking at the sort of implementation challenge, the sort of challenge of actually getting ready for what changes um, in the future relationship with the EU will mean for the UK. Um, if they did decide later in the year that they wanted a bit more time, I think we have looked at the fact there are other ways to do this. So one of the options we looked at is actually whether the two sides could amend the withdrawal agreement itself to change the, the date the transition period would end on. Um, this is something that uh, there's a lot of disagreement really about whether this would be possible or not. Um, some people say under international law you can amend those treaties, but I think on the EU side um, there's a bit of a concern about what the legal basis in the EU treaties would be for amending it. So if you were going to, if the two sides wanted to do this, um, likely they'd need a, a judgment from the ECJ beforehand just to make sure that it is on a solid legal foundation. I think one of the other options we looked at which potentially is more uh, realistic or maybe will have a bit more um, sort of it might be more palatable anyway to the UK government would be to include something like an implementation period um, within a future relationship treaty. So that would be accepting the two sides have reached the negotiations that they want. They know what they want from the future relationship, but realise that actually there's not enough time, particularly say for businesses to actually prepare for what that looks like. So within the future relationship treaty, you could sort of embed um, a bit more time to prepare. Now, there's a bit of a question about what that would look like. That is that something that's very similar to the transition period we've got? Is it more of a sort of phased in um, area uh, approach across different sectors of the agreement? Um, but that having said that, that would then be up for negotiation. And if the negotiations on the future relationship are coming down to the wire, if you then have to have further negotiations on um, an implementation period, that might prove challenging. Um, and there's also some questions about what that would then might mean for ratification on the EU side and whether or not the national parliaments in the EU would need to uh, play a role, which then would take longer. So mm -hmm. it's definitely not straightforward, but I do think that there, if there's political will on both sides, I think there could be a way to uh, buy more time where I think it probably becomes more challenging is if the two sides haven't reached an agreement at all. So you don't have that sort of opportunity to bed that into a future relationship. And it feels difficult to imagine the two sides agreeing a sort of standalone uh, further transition period if they can't agree on a future relationship at all. Mm -hmm. OK, thanks for that. So, yeah, some possible but quite complicated options there. And that's an excellent summary of our recent report, Securing More Time. So do go read that. Anyone who's interested um, in the full explanation of those options. Jenny, what's what's your um, position on this then? I mean, as I said, um, I know you'll have been um, like Jeremy, disappointed in, in what happened last week, but uh, what does the Scottish government do now? Do you um, push for any of, of, of those alternative options that Maddie's laid out or is the focus now very much on just getting a deal concluded and, and implemented in the next six months? Thank you, Akash. Um, yeah, well, I think just to reflect on some of uh, Jeremy's contributions, he's absolutely right to say that, you know, we need to have these negotiations uh, with, between the devolved administrations conducted on the basis of mutual respect and in terms of parity of esteem. And Maddie mentioned there being a, a lack of political will in terms of there being an extension. I, I think that's right and we need to acknowledge that. But we should also reflect on the Joint Ministerial Committee on EU negotiations um, and the terms of reference that were established there that state that, you know, all four administrations should seek to agree collectively 
the UK negotiating position and jointly to oversee the negotiations. And um, that group did not meet at all between late January and last month. I think that's really problematic. And all we are asking is for the UK government to honour those commitments. Um, in terms of the letter last week, as Jeremy outlined uh, in that letter, what we're asking for is a reboot of the way the UK government involves the devolved governments in the Brexit process. I think that's only fair. We're not looking for a readout. We need to have more of a proactive and meaningful discussion. And um, it's not for the UK government, for example, to point to the number of meetings that may or may not have taken place and to cite them as evidence of engagement. We need to have meaningful discussions and we need to have our views listened to and enacted um, accordingly. There hasn't even been an opportunity to discuss the UK position for negotiations, let alone to agree it. And of course, the UK government has simply informed the 12 governments of what is decided. So that readout um, position is really important to us. We need to have more of a meaningful discussion. Um, and certainly our view is that that engagement between the UK government and the devolved governments has often you know, served as some sort of window dressing rather than playing any meaningful role in the negotiations, which was certainly envisaged going back to the original terms of reference. Mm -hmm. OK, thanks. So um, I do I want to move on now then to um, some of the specific issues um, at stake in the negotiations and, and, and what the um, the perspectives of the of the various uh, devolved governments are on those issues. Um, first of all, David, if I if I could come to you, um, I mean, what's your overview of um, where we are in terms of the the UK EU negotiations, I mean, you know, the the, the reports of the uh, fourth round of of talks in in earlier this month um, seem to you know suggest that not that much progress had been made. So, what 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 do you think? I mean, how close are we to a deal, and uh, what are the key sticking points? It's very difficult to say exactly where we are because we're not inside the negotiations. We've not seen what progress that might might have been been made. But certainly, all the indications are that very little progress has been made. And if anything, there seems to be a divergence between the UK and the EU. Particularly if you take the starting point as being the political declaration that uh, the UK government and the EU agreed and uh, uh, and concluded at the same time as the with withdrawal agreement. And we saw that in Michel Barnier's comments recently, the extent to which the UK seems to be, from his perspective, moving um, away. Um, that said, we're still negotiating. Um, the threat to probably walk away from the negotiations, which the Prime Minister included in the White Paper earlier this year, um, has, has not been uh, followed through. So there is negotiation. Um, that said, as we've seen from a lot of the media reports, there's a considerable range of issues on which there are um, outstanding differences, whether that be level playing field and regulatory alignment, whether that be fish, whether that be governance arrangements. And I think it's also interesting to note in the light of the high level meeting between uh, uh, Boris Johnson and the uh, institutional leaders in, in the EU at the weekend. That since then, a lot of the media is picking up on a whole range of different issues on which there continues to be um, differences of, of opinion and they seem to be stumbling blocks despite um, the Prime Minister's um, preference to sort of push ahead and try and get a deal done before before the summer. I think if we put this in sort of comparative context previous negotiations we were anticipating 16, 18 months of negotiations before an agreement was was reached. Mm. Um, the timeline is exceptionally tight and if you're going to get an agreement it's probably not going to be anything like what you were possibly aspiring to when the UK um, left the EU or at least concluded the withdrawal agreement and the political declaration. Um, there's clearly a desire for um, agreement, um, 
but I must admit, you have to be an extreme optimist to believe that there's going to be a substantial agreement in place before the end of October. Um, and that if anything, we're probably going to have a very shallow agreement, possibly regulating trade, but then building on that in other areas um, in, mm -hmm. in terms of future negotiations after the end of the transition period. OK, thanks for that. And um, also to you, David, um, I mean, we've had a question in actually already from uh, Petrina, uh, who's, who's, who's watching, um, who points out that there's no political will as we've said, by the UK government to extend transition. But what about on the EU side? Would there be openness, do you think, um, on the EU side to potentially building in an implementation phase, um, which, as Maddie said, is, is one option given how, how short the time is? Okay, I, I think okay, the EU has always indicated that it would open, was has been open to an extension or um, I think recognizing the fact that okay you're operating under um, very very constrained time frames here mm. um, there's a pragmatism there um, and, I, and I think if there were ways in which you could um, create some implementation period then I think they would be willing to, to look at that um, I think at the moment the dominant view is okay finding the legal basis for doing that is very very difficult um, and um, therefore there's not necessarily a willingness to really engage with, with, with that discussion. Um, I think the priority at the moment is trying to get some sort of deal in place so you can minimise the disruption at the end of um, uh, December. OK, thanks. Um, so, yeah, time, time is short and there's there's a still a lot of um, uh, a, a lot of issues on which agreement has to be reached. Um, Jenny, for, for, from the Scottish government perspective, what, what, what are your um, your priorities in terms of what you'd like to to ensure that the deal, if if indeed a deal is done, um, either does or, or does not include. Well, I think if you go back to to twenty sixteen, I mean, we need to reflect upon the fact that you know Scotland didn't vote for this to happen, um, and yet we are trying to as best we can um, compromise and you know work with the UK government on an issue which the majority of our population is not in favour of. So going back to 2016, we, we published um, Scotland's Place in Europe um, and, you know, we, we made a shift in terms of our membership of the single market and the customs union. That was quite a shift for us in terms of policy, but it was also in response to the result of the referendum, which we accept. We might not like it, but we, we accept the result of it. That remains our priority to have an outcome as close to that as possible. And of course, this would mean, you know, not putting ideology about sovereignty uh, above all other considerations, which, which seems to be a huge challenge for the UK government. Um, we remain to have serious concerns about the end of freedom of movement. We know that it is going to uniquely harm Scotland, uh, where we remain particularly vulnerable um, to population decline. And we have repeatedly, of course, made the case for, for Scotland's continued involvement in EU programmes particularly in Erasmus, and we know that, you know, proportionately more Scots take part in Erasmus Plus than any other country in the UK. So it's really on these matters that we seek to continue to make progress with the UK government, however evasive that has uh, remained. Mm -hmm. OK, thanks. And um, I've had a question in, actually, that I'll, I'll, I'll put to you from uh, Paul Evans, who, who, who makes the point that um, since we've already, with the Northern Ireland Protocol, accepted that there's going to be something of a twin track relationship between the UK and the EU with, with Northern Ireland obviously in a different position. Um, what, what do you think are the uh, possibilities for Scotland and well and potentially Wales as well to, to div diverge from England 
um, in their relationships with the EU. Obviously, we're not talking about in the event of independence, which is another issue. But while while Scotland is within the UK, yeah. this is obviously something the Scottish government has advocated at various points. But yeah. do you see that as as a likely prospect at all? Well, it's not for me to, to comment on Wales, I'll let Jeremy uh, comment on that, but in, in terms of Scotland, we've today published the Continuity Bill, which will allow us to try and keep pace in matters of uh, devolved competence with the, the EU. Um, so certainly that's where we see our, our uh, standards and our legislation keeping pace with the European Union. We think that's extremely important and we'll do all we can in, in matters of devolved areas to seek to advance that Scotland keeps um, pace with, with Europe on that. Yeah, and on, on that issue, or indeed on, on the other priorities that you're trying to um, secure, um, how, able, how able have you felt to, um, to, to, to have influence over what the UK government ultimately um, does and negotiates with, with Brussels? I mean, are there, are there areas where you felt there has been uh, receptivity and where you have been able to, to, to influence the line at all? No, I mean, I think, um, as Jeremy set out, it's been quite a frustrating process. And um, one example is on fisheries, we, we tried to get movement on fisheries, which is of particular interest, of course, to Scotland to request that at least our officials uh, were in the room, as it were. Um, that has been ruled out, and it's really worrying that these talks are, are now going to go uh, into detail without us being in the room on that matter, as an example. Um, but we found it extremely frustrating, uh, the process, and you know, not least by the lack of uh, conversations or meaningful discussion between January in terms of there not being a JMCEN until last month. And mm. we appreciate, of course, that the unique pressures that all governments are under, the UK government, um, not least our, ourselves uh, in terms of fighting COVID-19. However, because there have been no discussions and no meaningful input from the devolved administrations in that time, there has felt that there's been uh, a lost opportunity, certainly from our perspective, to get movement. Okay, thanks for that. So, Jeremy, um, and turning to you, um, you're a bit of a, a veteran now, I think, of uh, negotiations with the British government over, over Brexit. Um, I mean, what's what, what's been your experience of um, this most recent phase, because I know, I mean, we've spoken before personally and, and you've obviously were on public record um, expressing frustration at your ability to influence the Article 50 negotiations. Um, have things changed from your perspective? Have you found it easier, more difficult uh, to, to, to have influence over the, uh, the, the negotiations over the future relationship? And I would say, Akash, actually, you know, the promise was that once we got beyond the withdrawal agreement, uh, that we would be in the kind of sunlit uplands of uh, closer engagement. Um, mm. But that's actually, I would say that if anything, engagement has become worse, actually, and certainly worse under the Johnson government than under the May government. I think mm. it's been quite markedly different uh, in that sense. I, you know, I think for, just to be crystal clear that for However, this negotiation turns out, for good or ill, it will have been the UK government's negotiation. I mean, there's no mm. sense in which it has been materially influenced uh, by the devolved governments. Um, and I think actually the test we ought to be measuring against isn't whether a deal exists, because plainly it seems to me pretty lucky that some sort of deal is achievable. The question is, what does the deal do? And from our point of view, even, you know, plainly our position as a government was different from that of the UK government about the kind mm. of relationship we wanted with the European Union. But even if you took the UK government on its own terms, 
the political declaration agreed by Boris Johnson, in fact. Mm. Now, this set of negotiations simply isn't going to end up in anything which looks like that. And from our point of view as a government, we want to see uh, prioritising access to EU markets. We want to see no tariffs on trade. We want to have cooperation on security and the environment. We want to have continued access to EU programmes. Um, and the point that you were making uh, in the question you put to Jenny about divergence, I think there is a possibility, for example, in the space of EU programmes, that even though UK government, as it were, on behalf of England, doesn't think that continued full participation is what they want for England, there's no reason why they couldn't negotiate access if the Welsh or the Scottish or Northern Ireland government wants it for their own countries. And I think that mm. would demonstrate, um, you know, some capacity to compromise with the EU on this issue and mm. would allow divergence within the UK. Mm. And what would be your, your priorities in that respect, which, which would be the, the EU programmes or systems that the Welsh government would, would particularly push to, to remain part of? Well, I mean, the ones which I think have probably been most impactful for um, our economy and for our young people are um, Erasmus+, Plus, Horizon mm. Europe, Creative Europe, Interreg, um, and our position on this has been clear for some time. You know, we've not actually had an answer to the question as to whether that is being put to the European Commission in the discussions, which plainly it should be being put and it should be being put energetically. Actually, it would be an area where the UK government could signal the capacity to find some common ground with the EU, because at the end of the day, what's happening in terms of the dynamic of the negotiation, as David was saying, is essentially the UK government is saying, well, we've set out our stall and the EU are going to have to compromise. And I just think that's completely unrealistic. Mm -hmm. And have you found it um, useful to, um, to to make the case for, for, for that kind of ultimate um, arrangement in Brussels? I mean, has that been part of your strategy to speak with the EU institutions or indeed to um, other member states? Have you found openness to, to listening to, to, to the Welsh government perspective? Well, there, there are two aspects to that. We absolutely are not in the business of, you know, undermining the UK government's negotiating responsibilities, which is what they are, in fact, on behalf of the entire UK. But they are on behalf of the entire UK. Um, but the second point is we've been, you know, from the very start, actually, we've um, been, I feel, pretty rigorous and evidence-based in the case that we have been making throughout. And we've obviously made sure at all points that the EU institutions are aware of what we are putting in the public domain um, as the case for for Wales, if you like, mm -hmm. in this context. So I think it's a, there's a balance to be struck. We take every opportunity of making the case for Welsh interests, but actually it's the EU, it's the UK's gov government's responsibility to negotiate on behalf of all parts of the UK. Mm -hmm. rather than, as is certainly the case in relation to EU programmes, a view based upon, I would submit, its view of what's in the interests of England. Mm -hmm. OK, thanks. Uh, one question um, we've had that I will put to you, Jeremy, as well, which is um, from Ian McLean. Um, so he asks, here's a constitutional question. Is there a route for Scotland and Wales to go to court or is that ruled out by the refusal of the Supreme Court to accept the devolution angle in Miller 1, namely the Miller case of, of 2017? So I think the uh, I, I, I would um, 
understand that to be yes i mean is there any way that uh, the devolved governments could could uh, potentially bring a case against the uk government for um trying to potentially push through a deal that does not ultimately have the consent of the the devolved governments even though presumably it will impact upon um devolved competences well um as you said in your question, the Miller case demonstrates the, the fact that the Sewell Convention, which is what this essentially uh, amounts to, is not justiciable, unfortunately. Our strong view is that it should be, by the way, uh, and that it should be enumerated and, and statutory and, and given statutory codification. Uh, but, you know, we have we have been uh, to court unsuccessfully in this. And actually, you know, we shouldn't, in a sense, um, crow about that. Not that we do, by the way, but these things ought to be capable of resolution on the basis of well-functioning intergovernmental machinery and we've been consistent really in putting forward um, reasoned and we feel pragmatic proposals for which you know which could form the basis for those sorts of intergovernmental relations into the future reform of the jmc replacing it with the council of ministers those sorts of things which would function to minimize uh, tensions and i think would lead to a more constructive and I think, credible set of negotiating positions for the UK government to advance on behalf of the UK. Mm -hmm. OK, thank you very much. Um, so we've heard from uh, Scotland and Wales. David, I'd like to come back to you now. Um, what are, as far as you can make out, the, the, the priorities for um, for the Northern Ireland executive or more broadly for Northern Ireland um, in these negotiations? And um, also, is there a unified position on on that because you know obviously uh the the northern ireland executive is formed of uh, well coalition of, of five parties the main two being dup and sinn fein who <laughs> don't agree on much um what's what's the what's the position at the moment have, have they got a common united front okay well, i think we, we've not had any pu public um statement to the, to the effect to demonstrate that there is a united front on, on this, um, partly because um, COVID has taken over so much of, of government business. And the, whereas at the beginning of the year when the executive was re-established, we were expecting some quite prominent statements on the programme for government and what the priorities would be. Um, that, that Those have not materialised. But that said, I think there are two priorities. Um, one is to get the protocol implemented and implemented in a way where mm -hmm. the disruption for Northern Ireland um, in the context of its position within the UK is minimised. Um, and so that is a key pr key priority at the moment and that any flexibilities within the, within the protocol are, are maximised and, and really used. Um, in terms of the future relationship, I think there the interest is, and it's, it's a very high level, it's not been really detailed, is to ensure that whatever comes out of that relationship doesn't exacerbate the tensions which the protocol creates for Northern Ireland within it for its position within the United Kingdom as regards trade. Because I think what if we do not have a, a substantially developed trade arrangement with the EU, which includes a degree of regulatory alignment, then the tensions for the movement of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland increases. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a, a significant concerns there. Um, that said, if, beyond that, if you look about the look at the political parties' positions, clearly you've got um, three of the political parties wanting as close a relationship as possible, very much along the lines that um, um, Scotland and Wales are, are looking for, continued participation in a whole range of programmes, different forms of, of cooperation. Um, 
I think for the two unionist parties, they're more keen to ensure that whatever happens for the UK, um, Northern Ireland is in, in as far as possible lockstep with the rest of the UK. Um, but the positions are not particularly well developed at, at the moment. Yeah, and um, I mean, a, 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 year, a year ago, of course, um, the UK government perhaps would have been uh, more likely to, to, to have to um, take into account what the what the DUP in particular um, said or, or, or thought on these issues, given the position in Westminster at the time. Um, I mean, the government now has its its big majority. I mean, do, do, do you have uh, a sense of, of how influential um, the the voice of the, the, the Northern Ireland parties and the Northern Ireland executive has been in the last few months? Um, I don't think they've been particularly uh, influential at all. I, I think we, we see a similar situation to the one which Scotland and Wales are finding is that the extent of UK government engagement with Northern Ireland to work out what Northern Ireland wants from these negotiations or from the implementation of the protocol has been minimal. Um, yes, there's often a seeking information, but quite often it's receiving a readout on um, the UK government position. That said, it has to be recognised that in terms of the implementation of the protocol, Northern Ireland does attend meetings of the Joint Committee. Um, so there is at least a presence, but yeah, the extent yeah. to which the UK government's position that it's going to adopt there is one which is formulated on the basis of um, developed con um, consultation. Um, there's very, very little evidence to suggest that's taking place. So it goes back, mm -hmm. I think, to the point that Jeremy was making. You really do need more effective intergovernmental structures within the UK to ensure that the position is one that reflects, in this case, Northern Ireland, as well as Scotland and Wales, in what the UK is putting forward. Yes, and we've had a question on that, actually, from uh, David Gow, who asks, um, is there any point in retaining the, the JMC framework? That's the, so the Joint Ministerial Committee uh, framework in which uh, devolved ministers are, um, are, are, are sit around the table or virtual table with, with UK ministers. Uh, the question goes on, the UK government clearly sees little or no merit or purpose um, other in such meetings other than for setting out and imposing its views. Um, is that your view or I mean what, what should that machinery actually look like do you think? I think that there has to be some machinery um, and whether you build on what you've got in the JMC arrangements or whether you start from scratch because they are tainted with a, a sense of inaction and lack of engagement from um, the UK government. Um, I think it, 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 that's open for, for debate, but there do need to be structures. But one thing I, I would add to, um, to this as well, from a Northern Ireland perspective, because Northern Ireland is in a particular relationship with the EU, there is a question as to whether the JMC mechanism really works for Northern Ireland in terms of the protocol. Does there need to be dedicated arrangements which are related to the protocol per se? to ensure that the Northern Ireland voice feeds into the UK government position. Um, but we're, we're at a stage where I think a lot of the promises which were made back by Theresa May about ensuring that the devolves are involved in, in the process of formulating the UK government position um, simply have not been delivered on and that you've really got to have a reboot here. OK, great, thanks. And yeah, we will hopefully come back to the protocol in a moment. Uh, Maddie, I'm going to come to you in a second. Uh, just a quick mention to all those watching. Uh, do please keep uh, feeding in your questions. We've got a f we've had a few good ones already, um, but keen to take more. Um, so please add those via the Q&A function. Uh, Maddie, so turning to you, um, I mean, you've listened to, 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 to the various 
um, points made so far. I mean, when you look at the big picture, do you think the UK government has um, has done enough to, to to take the devolved views into account in this process? And 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 how? What do you think the uh, is the right structure maybe for um, for for intergovernmental relations around around Brexit in particular, and uh, potentially also um, around future future other trade negotiations and so on. Well, I mean, obviously, you've already heard from people who've been directly in the room in, for example, those JMCEN discussions. And clearly, clearly it hasn't worked in terms of uh, building consensus across uh, the UK um, in terms of building a sort of UK wide approach to the negotiations. And as I say, if we did take a bigger picture, I think this has been a criticism of the UK government from the start. Um, you know, Jenny talked about there being a sort of what four or five month gap of JMCEN meetings this year. But I think in October there wasn't a meeting. Oh, sorry, in 2017, there wasn't a JMCEN meeting between, I think, February and October of that year. And during that time, Theresa May triggered Article 50, for example, and also introduced uh, the EU withdrawal bill. So clearly this has been a bit of an issue throughout. Um, I think I obviously take Jeremy's point that it does seem like uh, Boris Johnson's government seems less willing to engage. And again, you know, obviously Jeremy can speak to that in much more detail than I can. Um, I think it's been quite interesting looking back over the last few years because it does feel like there has been a sort of bit of a, an up and down experience so negotiations largely doesn't seem to have worked and I think there is obviously a challenge of the fact that the, the UK government just has very different priorities for the future relationship with the EU than the Welsh and Scottish governments and also Northern executive um, when it came back. Uh, well, you know, for most of the withdrawal agreement negotiations, there wasn't an executive in Northern Ireland, which made that very difficult. So you've obviously got the political context, which does make it tricky. Um, I think what I found quite interesting is looking at when um, there has been better cooperation, so particularly around no deal planning. Um, and I think, you know, that's carried through um, particularly to the start of the response uh, to coronavirus this year. You know, when when there have been issues, um, it feels like there is a more of an impetus for the UK government to go out and engage better with the devolved administrations and possibly there's more of a joint uh, sense of purpose. I think it'll be very interesting to see whether that will continue around preparation to the end of this year on Brexit. I, I sort of hold, hold judgment on that at this stage. Um, in terms of uh, what structures might work, I mean, you know, in 2018, I think March 2018, uh, the government's agreed to an intergovernmental relations review. We still haven't seen the results of that review. Um, there's big questions about, for example, the dispute settlement mechanism. At the moment, essentially, the UK government can choose to ignore a dispute raised by one of the other governments. That that strikes me as something that's quite important to address if you want to build trust and build a sort of more meaningful relationship. Um, but I would I would be interested to see what they say. I mean, I, I think just picking up what Jenny said, for example, about wanting uh, Scottish officials in the room on negotiating fish, because that's sort of an issue that's of a big, um, a big importance for the Scottish government. I think I'm very sympathetic to that. I think it makes sense that when the UK government is negotiating, although negotiations are obviously reserved to the UK government, it does make sense to draw on the relevant expertise actually across the four nations when you're entering negotiations. And that doesn't just apply for the negotiations with the EU, but also other trade negotiations or other international agreement negotiations going forward. So I take I think so I think maybe it was David's point about um, how maybe we need to rebrand the JMC because it just seems like it's uh, it just doesn't it's so criticised that actually probably starting afresh might be quite a good idea. Um, but I think there's also just a bit of a question about how 
the UK government wants to uh, sort of build a bit more trust with the devolved administrations. Um, and, and although it seems like Boris Johnson's government is not as interested in that, um, I do I do hope that changes and that actually that they can the government itself also recognises the value of, as I say, drawing on that expertise from the devolved governments, making sure that any trade deals they strike serve the businesses across the UK rather than just sort of focusing on, on English interests. So I think that mm. there is a value add there for the UK government that I think is, is really important um, that it considers. OK, thanks very much, Maddie. Um, Jeremy, I saw you were signalling to come in, I think, when um, Maddie was talking about the experience of working together on no deal preparation, although it might have been on another point as well. Um, and there's also actually, sorry, before you do come in, there's another question that's just popped up that I, I'll put to you at the same time, um, which is on the, is from Shauna McGean, thank you for this, uh, who asks, when will the IGR Intergovernmental Relations Review be done. <laughs> That's probably a hard <laughs> one to answer. Where, what, what progress do you, has it made recently might be an easier one for you to comment on. Um, and do you think it will include plans for um, liaison with the devolved administrations on UK, EU and or UK international trade matters? So yeah, if you want to comment on that as well, that would be helpful. Certainly. Um, just the first point in relation to JMC and Maddie's comments about that. I mean, our position as a government is that it needs fundamental reform. But I, I think, frankly, if it did what it said on the tin, it would be a start. You know, there are terms of reference which are designed to seek agreement. I think if it did that, that would be a, a you know, that would be a foundation on which more could be built, really, if, you, if, if one was to take an optimistic view of it. And on the point of trade and on the point of preparations, subject to quite an important caveat, I think it is important to acknowledge that there are examples of good working between the governments. So on international trade with third countries, for example, our experience certainly as a government is that there's been much more uh, engagement and involvement in those areas. Um, and in the early stages, certainly of preparing for you know, how we responded to coronavirus and the passage of the Coronavirus Act, I would say there was a good level of joint working. So I think the challenge is you know, where the UK government recognises it's an emergency, so there's a need to cooperate, or it's a public health issue, which is clearly in their minds devolved, mm. it feels like it has been easier to work, you know, and where perhaps interests are more aligned, you know, additional trade opportunities for third countries, then perhaps it's easier in that space. But the challenge is to put in place machinery which works when political interests aren't aligned. That's actually when those structures come into their own really. So I think that needs to be um, the, the focus really of, you know, further effort, frankly, um, and movement on the part of the UK government. On the question of the intergovernmental review, I mean, I don't know when it'll come to fruition. It's already passed its intended uh, conclusion date by some margin. Um, at the last JMCN, um, which we had virtually a few weeks ago, um, all governments agreed that that would be um, re-energised if you, if you like. Um, it certainly needed to be re-energised um, and so certainly around the question of uh, dispute avoidance and resolution which is actually very important for the future uh, economic relationship uh, and you know relationships within the UK into the future. We very much hope that there'll be something which ministers can engage with in the coming weeks. Now whether that happens or not obviously at this point we can't say but there have been 
um, rebooted project board meeting since that JMCN with a view to officials um, you know, narrowing down the areas still in uh, still outstanding for uh, consideration. So, mm. you know, with will, plainly it is possible. OK, yeah, and that's something we'll we'll certainly be uh, following as well. But as you say, um, there's been a commitment to an IGR review going back, I think, to um, 2014 <laughs> after the NDUF in Scotland. And, and, and um, I wouldn't therefore um, expect very rapid progress, but maybe I'll be surprised this time. Um, Jenny, coming back to you, um, there's one question that's um, that's come in from uh, Dan O'Donoghue. Um, specifically on the question of fisheries, which um, has come up a couple of times. So he says, um, so, so you, Jenny, said that the Scottish government has been excluded from the fisheries uh, talks with the EU. Um, if you had been in the room or if your colleagues had been in the room, what would the Scottish government um, be advocating? Do you disagree with the UK government position that Britain will become an independent coastal state come the end of the transition? Well, look, I think we need to establish in the room when it comes to fisheries and without our officials being in the room, it's very difficult to see the content of what's being discussed. I think what's coming through, certainly from uh, speaking and hearing again from Jeremy today, is that we're not being cited on some of this, the key material, and this is going to impact on devolved areas. So without having sight of that information, it's very difficult to see what's being traded in our favour and or against us rather. Um, and it's very difficult, therefore, for us to, to have a fuller picture of what's being spoken about. And we've seen this not just on fisheries, of course, but also in the programmes I referred to earlier, the importance of Erasmus um, in terms of horizon on migration. We, we can't be in the room. We can't have access to, to the, the fine detail. And without that, it's very difficult to see um, how we can have a, an impact and how our officials rather can offer their expertise. And I think um, Maddie spoke about you know, Scottish officials having that expertise and how important fisheries certainly is to Scotland's economy. Um, we can't have those meaningful discussions without being in the room. And we have offered that um, as, I guess, a route of compromise um, without having our officials and their expertise in the room. And unfortunately, on that basis, the UK government have not been able to take us up on that offer, which is really regrettable. But to go back to the point on um, how we work better together and with regards to the, the intergovernmental relations. Um, I think Jeremy's absolutely right to say that COVID-19 has given us a good example of how we can work uh, on a four-nation basis across the United Kingdom. Despite our political differences, it is possible. Um, and yet, you know, we had the establishment, for example, of the ministerial implementation groups. Now, the MIGs were really important in getting that work done and sharing that information. And yet when it comes to Brexit, we can't have those conversations. And I think that's an important point um, of, of difference. And it, it just shows that if there is a political will, um, we, we can move forward. And hopefully we will move forward and we will continue to make those representations to the UK government going forward. Mm -hmm. OK, thanks. Um, and I, I want to move on now um, in the last um, well, 12 minutes or so we have to the preparations that the various governments are doing or will need to do um, for the, the end of transition, um, which we, we've touched on, uh, upon a little bit already. Um, I mean, Jenny, from your perspective, um, what, what do you see as, as the biggest challenges that, that Scotland faces um, between now and, and the end of December um, in, in being ready for the changes that will come at that point? Yeah. 
So in terms of um, where we are with regard to those uh, plans, we published our previous no deal readiness plans um, and in due course, of course, we'll also have to publish um, an updated plan. Um, we'll do the best that we can, but we are being hampered, as I said previously, by not knowing what we need to implement um, because it's still being negotiated and it's being negotiated at ridiculously tight timescales, I think it's fair to say. Um, as a responsible government, we will prepare as best we can, despite the ongoing need for us to deal directly with uh, the, the coronavirus crisis. And I think from a Scottish perspective, it should be said that we have paused our work on independence um, to focus on that crisis. It's really deeply regrettable that the UK government has not paused their work on Brexit um, to focus on saving lives. Um, but obviously the UK government's refusal to see that extension means that that's simply impossible for businesses and for governments to be ready in time. And the UK government's talked a good game about giving business certainty and actually what Brexit does is create a great deal of uncertainty. Um, so by asking for that extension, certainly our, our view was that that would give business the time they need to plan and put in place those plans if they had been granted the two-year extension, which the UK government has, has subsequently uh, ruled out. I mean, we're, we're being hampered by the fact that even now we don't know what the outcome of the negotiations will be, whether it's going to be a deal and into so the details of that deal. Um, and businesses certainly across Scotland have made clear to us that their members are understandably preoccupied with dealing with the COVID-19 crisis and they don't have the bandwidth to prepare for transition um, ending on the 31st of uh, December. So we are still seriously concerned that we're going to be left um, unable to advise businesses on what they need to do, but we'll absolutely put in place those plans as we did previously in terms of the no deal preparations. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And uh, Jeremy, how similar um, is the, the Welsh situation in, in regard to the, the challenges of, of being ready for, for the end of the year? Well, I mean, in a sense, it's a similar picture. The capacity, plainly, of all governments and all businesses and organisations to prepare at the moment is vastly diminished, isn't it, for reasons which we will all understand. That's actually, you know, just from a good governance point of view, one of the reasons that we were advancing the case for an extension so that you know we could prepare for whatever lies ahead. Um, so that's the kind of big picture point. Um, but the other aspect to this is that we have got to get a way of working which enables the governments together to prepare as best we can. And I put it no higher than that really at this point uh, for the end of the year. Um, you know, there has been a gap in that, frankly. I, I don't, you know, I think we need to look forward at this point. And in the last few weeks, there's been indications of um, you know, hopefully better working together on that. But it is, you know, it's very, very important that governments find a pragmatic way of working together in a very kind of open book way in relation to this in the future. And I certainly hope that will be possible. But, you know, COVID does two things. Firstly, it diminishes the capacity of governments and others to prepare, but also it changes the context in which those preparations are being made. So whether it's around um, food or whether it's around medicine supplies, whether it's around business readiness, there are ways in which EU exit and COVID overlaid on top of each other create an incredible set of tensions mm. right across the economy and public services, for example. And so we obviously, as Jenny was saying, that uh, the Scottish government is doing is we're also revisiting, obviously, the work that we did last year to prepare for what could have been a crash out at the end of last year and updating that. Now, some things, frankly, we've learnt more about. So food supply is obviously a very good example of that and threats around panic buying. So we know a little bit more about how to handle some of that for reasons which we will all understand. But there are other things which have become more intense as a consequence. And, you know, despite the announcement last week, the existence of any additional checks at the border 
really is a very fundamental change across the economy at a time when businesses, you know, frankly, just aren't in a position to prepare. Yes. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, speaking of checks at borders, David, I, I wanted to turn to you at this point. I mean, there's obviously some very specific um, implementation challenges um, that you, 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 passed, uh, you, you mentioned in passing already, but relating to the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, which will involve some kind of new um, customs and regulatory checks um, in between Great Britain and Northern Ireland for the first time. And um, I mean, a colleague of ours at the Institute, Jess Sargent, who's written on this, um, concluded just recently that, um, well, time is running out for the government and others to explain how the border in the Irish Sea will work. Um, what's your take? Do you think we're going to be ready? very very difficult to say we're at least moving in the right direction insofar as the UK government has acknowledged that it's got obligations there that there are going to be um, checks controls formalities and there needs to be processes put around those um, and I think the recent command paper um, was very was useful in terms of it recognizing that but what I think everybody's been crying out for is the detail knowing exactly what is going to happen, whether that's going to be around customs, whether that's going to be around regulatory checks, whether that's going to be around the SPS checks, um, what that's going to mean for the VAT re regimes in operation, what that's going to be for IT systems that need to be in, in place, um, a whole series of questions there as well. And then come on top of that, there's the whole question of whether tariffs are going to be applied mm. on goods. Um, because in the absence of a free trade, comprehensive free trade deal between the UK and the EU, then tariffs will by default become liable on goods moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland. Tariffs will be exempted where we can prove that those goods are not going on or not at risk of going on into the e EU market. Um, huge concerns around that because the decisions have not been made about what goods would classify at risk. Um, and businesses really do need to know that. Um, there's also arrangements that decisions which need to be taken this year around agricultural subsidies so that Northern Ireland can, can, um, producers can, can retain their access into the EU market. There needs to be decisions taken about um, fish as well because fish are not covered by the protocol. Um, whole series of arrangements and then we also got to know what monitoring arrangements are going to be put in place um, for, so that the EU can ensure that the protocol is being implemented. A whole series of questions um, there. And I think business has been um, calling out for, for clarity around this. Um, and um, yeah, because they need to prepare. And it's not just, I think, businesses in Northern Ireland that need to know. It's going to be their supplies from the rest of the UK. Yeah. Um, and I think there's serious concerns there about how much understanding there is um, within the UK as a whole about what is going to be happening in terms of the movement of goods between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Equally, I know the government has been um, committed to unfettered access for Northern Ireland goods going into the rest of the UK, mm. but that's not necessarily that's still to be resolved because of the whole question about exit declarations and also what regulatory checks that there might need to be um, for goods entering um, via Northern Ireland in, into into the rest of the UK. Um, so huge number of issues still to be resolved. Um, we know what the issues are. But there's yes. probably decisions taken on them and then I think yeah. the process is put in place. Um, so what will um, those moving goods need to do in order to comply with those regulations? Yeah, a huge number of, 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 of questions and, and, and issues to be resolved, as you say. Uh, Maddie, you've been uh, doing some work uh, recently on this question of, of, of readiness. 
for the end of transition um, across all parts of the UK, I think. I mean, where, where do you see the, the biggest uh, challenges as lying? I think that there's obviously there's a question about government readiness, but I think as sort of has already been discussed, to be honest, the, the big question really is whether business will be ready. Um, so, you know, Jenny has already said, you know, there were there's an uncertainty about what the end of the year looks like. Um, we sort of know what no agreement looks like. It's not quite the same as no deal last year. Certain issues have been resolved within the withdrawal agreement. So, for example, citizens' rights are protected and we know there won't be a hard border on the island of Ireland, although David has very clearly set out that there are still big, big questions about what the border between Northern Ireland and GB looks like. Um, but so, that, so it's not quite the same, um, but a lot of the plans that the government may have already started putting in place are there. So developing new systems to take place of EU databases, for example, there sort of has been more time to build those up. Um, but we do know that the last few months, obviously, capacity in government in, in uh, Whitehall, but also in the devolved governments has, just hasn't been there to actually to be focusing on Brexit preparations. Um, but I think that there are some things, for example, we know whatever happens, there will be needed to be more, uh, there will have to be certain uh, paperwork filled in at the border and also there will have to be um, some checks, the extent to which again depends on the deal. But the biggest problem is basically, as I said, is business readiness, particularly those trading in goods. I mean, what we have heard is just there is not the bandwidth in business at all to uh, think about this. Um, teams who might be working on Brexit last year have either been furloughed, made redundant or reprioritised. There is not the cash to build up stockpiles in the way they did last year to anticipate any possible disruption at the border. Um, and basically, even if government started telling business, uh, which I think they are planning doing sort of from next uh, month, they're going to be launching a new communications campaign. Even if they uh, do do that, there's actually just about a bit of a question about whether business has the capacity or resource to deal with it. So actually, I think we are going to be seeing a lot of businesses um, in October, November struggling to uh, to actually put in place any plans to deal with possible disruption at the end of the year or really well, inevitable disruption, the scale of which will depend on whether there's an agreement or not. OK, well, thank you. Um, We've covered a lot of ground. There was lots of other uh, questions I was I was hoping to get to. So apologies if I haven't uh, managed to, to to put everything uh, to the panel that people have suggested. Um, but well, rather like the negotiations, perhaps we are running out of time. Uh, I'm not allowed to request a an extension to that. I understand. <laughs> so um, I would just like to take the opportunity to say thank you once again to Jenny Gilruth. Jeremy Miles, David Finnamore and Maddie Timont-Jack, our excellent informed panel uh, for talking us through all of these issues. Thank you to everyone who has tuned in. Um, I understand there may have been some technical problems with the video, but hopefully you've been able to hear us um, OK and have found this a useful and um, informative discussion, as I certainly have. So until next time, thank you and goodbye.